Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. All right. Good afternoon. My name is Steve Wagner, and I am a program officer at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. We are thrilled today to host Yan Zhonghuang for a discussion on his newest book, Toxic Politics, China's Environmental Health Crisis and its Challenge to the Chinese State. It's a fascinating look into the severe environmental problems that China is facing and its efforts to overcome them. And ultimately, this book paints a clear picture of a political system that is, as he says, remarkably resilient, but fundamentally flawed. So it's my pleasure to introduce the author and our speaker today. Yan Zhonghuang is a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations and a professor and the director of global health studies at Seton Hall University's School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Yan Zhong is also a fellow in the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program and a longtime friend of the committee. Now, as you may know, Yan Zhong is an expert on many aspects of public health in China and is therefore frequently tapped to give his analysis on the COVID-19 pandemic. I just heard he's had over 500 media appearances over the last year, so you may have seen some of these. Um, now, while today's program will mainly focus on the content of Yan Zhong's book, we will of course reserve some time to talk about COVID-19. Now, the topic of environmental degradation is not limited to China. As we think about China's role um, and how we think about the US working with China in the fight against climate change, we have to consider how, if what happened in Washington last week affects and will continue to affect the bilateral relationship. So we may or may not try to tackle that issue today, if we have time. So what I'm gonna do is ask Yan Zhong to start with an introduction of why he wanted to write this book and then give us an overview of the current state of China's environmental health situation. After that, I'll ask some of my questions and then we'll turn to the audience Q&A. As a reminder, you can submit a question at any time during the program using the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. And if you feel comfortable, please provide me your name and affiliation so that I can recognize you. And with that, Yan Zhong, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Stephen. <laughs> it's really a pleasure to uh, speak uh, uh, again at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Uh, please allow me to share the screen. In fact, <laughs> um, I actually like to use this opportunity to thank many of the National Committee members who have contributed to the completion of this book project. Uh, some of them, uh, including Steve and Jane, uh, were members of the CFR study group on China's environmental health. Uh, they provided very useful feedback on several chapters. Uh, and some of them have uh, read the, uh, the full manuscript and written blurbs for the book. Uh, uh, and I owe a big thanks to many uh, um, other the, uh, the public intellectuals at the national committees, you know, uh, who offered help and support. And I forgot to mention that I like also to thank Margot uh, for being 
uh, extending that the invitation really and organizing the event uh, in addition to Stephen. Uh, so Steve, uh, Stephen asked this question and what motivated me to write this book? Well, essentially I, I started this book project in 2013 uh, when the smog suddenly became a headlines uh, in Chinese media. In fact, uh, in January, 2013, I believe uh, the readings of PM 2.5, you know, that was uh, for those who don't know what PM 2.5 is, well, they are the uh, fine particles in the air, you know, that are smaller than 2.5 micrometers in diameter, and they are capable of causing serious heart and lung problems, you know, at high concentrations. So uh, they're considered the most harmful to health uh, the, the air, as an air pollutant. Uh, so uh, the readings of PM 2.5 in January 2013 actually reached 40 times the maximum level allowed by the World Health Organization. You know, then even in February, there was this reports, you know, that linked to water pollution and harmful chemicals to serious uh, health problems, uh, including the emergence of uh, several hundred so-called cancer villages. You know, this is uh, the communities where uh, the rates of cancer are unusually high. Uh, they are, so these events led me to think about the relationship between environment and health. You know? so, but until that time, I found that analysis of this new uh, policy field had the remained relatively underdeveloped, you know, segregated uh, within the two separate sectors, environment and health. So that noted my interest to uh, synthesize environment, health, and government uh, governance problems in China into a one single and accessible source. But the second reason that motivated me to write this book is that environmental health issues and China's response actually serve as a springboard to examine uh, China's state capacity. Uh, you know, we have, you know, the, the most studies on China's rising power, you know, they tend to highlight China's economic prowess, the military buildup, you know, as well as its ability uh, to project its international influence. But uh, uh, many fail to pay adequate attention to another important dimension of the state power. You know, that is the state capacity to extract resources, to mobilize those resources, to provide the public goods and services, to have its claim to rule voluntarily accepted by the people, and to enforce the rules, norms, and regulations across its entire territory. Uh, so, um, you know, I want to, again, but use that uh, case to examine uh, the health and non-health implications of China's environmental health crises, and then the state's capacity to effectively respond uh, to the crises. So uh, if you uh, look at this table of contents of the book, after the introduction, uh, I have actually two parts. Uh, um, the first part is basically discussion of the health and the non-health impacts of the environmental challenges. Uh, the second uh, focus on the government response, we talk about the evolution of the government environmental health policy and how the government enforce and implement the policy, uh, which is followed by assessment of government policy uh, effectiveness. So, uh, um, <laughs> 
Now, I want to address that, that question before we talk about this policy process. Uh, in fact, that was several years ago uh, when Jeffrey Sachs, who's the chair of that CFR environmental study group, uh, he asked me this question, right? Uh, what makes the case of China's environmental health challenges so unique? Right? So I gave some thought right here. Uh, the answer is that the scope, severity, complexity, and timing of China's environmental health um, crisis has raised its critical concerns about ability of the Chinese state to cope with its complex internal challenges. First of all, let's look at the scope, right? Uh, we have, we know that the, uh, the China's environmental health challenge itself is not unique, right? Because the United States, Great Britain, right? Japan, right? They, they have all uh, documented uh, this effects of environmental degradation you know, on health. You know? But, uh, you know, the scope of severity, uh, severity complexity, and the timing of China's environmental health crisis actually has reached another dimension. Uh, um, let's look at the scope, right? Uh, unlike many Western countries where air pollution is limited by locality and the duration, China actually has found air pollution to be a nationwide a sustainable threat to health. Right? In 2013, for example, the smog affected uh, 800 million people over a span of 540,000 square, uh, square miles. Then you look at the severity, right? Air pollution right, in some places of China was so bad, right? It went off the standard uh, scale, right? Even the worst polluted American cities would rank among those with the best air quality in China. You know, that is what uh, led uh, James Fellows, the American journalist, to conclude that no one now alive has experienced anything similar in North America or Europe, except in the middle of a forest fire or volcanic eruption. And, uh, and third, let's look at complexity, right? We, ha we have heard London fog. We have heard right, the, the, the pollution in LA, you know, but uh, unlike, um, this pollution problems, you know, China's air pollution contains a complex mixture of pollutants, right? Uh, as I argue in the book, uh, what Chinese call wumei or haze is actually a mix of the London fog type particles and sulfates you know, arising from fossil fuel combustion and Los Angeles smog type photochemical pollution occurring in areas with high visual traffic and sunlight. And finally, there's an issue of timing, right? Uh, when we talk about China's rise, and we find the parallel American rise, but the United States did not face a major environmental crisis in its pre-World War II emergence as a superpower, right? China does not enjoy such a, a luxury, right? Its enormous environmental health problems so present a major challenge uh, to its global ambitions. Uh, so I'm not going to belabor uh, how you know, the, the policy involves uh, in uh, uh, addressing these environmental challenges, you know, but I want to highlight here the, um, the two, uh, the, uh, the policy enforcement and the policy assessment. Uh, the policy enforcement wise, we found that the government efforts to clean pollution basically 
focused on boosting accountability and increasing central authority right, through those uh, um, policy instruments like environmental supervision talks, right, central environmental protection inspection, or CEPI, you know, don't get confused with the, uh, the CEPI that is behind the COVAX pillows. The, uh, that is the, uh, the acronym for the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. But the, uh, the Central in, uh, Environmental Protection Inspection uh, is used to, to supervise you know, local pollution control work. Uh, they also try to improve interdependent, uh, interdepartmental coordination uh, through uh, um, the campaigns, uh, in uh, April 2017, the Minister, uh, Ministry of Environment uh, began the largest inspection campaign on record, you know, well, uh, when it deployed some 5,600 environmental inspectors, you know, to Beijing, Tianjin, and Hebei region and nearby areas to check the compliance uh, with the environmental laws and policies in the 28 uh, uh, northern Chinese cities. Right? The number of inspectors eventually uh, increased to 7,000 in September. Right? So that was considered the time of the toughest air pollution uh, regulation history. And those efforts actually were facilitated by the recreation of what we call the bandwagon polity under President Xi Jinping. Right? Uh, the bandwagon polity essentially refers to a situation you know, when uh, in the hierarchical society, uh, the polity, you have all the major political resources actually concentrated right, in the superordinate figure like President Xi. Uh, so that sort of changed the, the, local, the government officials' incentive structure. So, so they will jump onto uh, President Xi's bandwagon to show their early and enthusiastic support of President Xi's policy agenda. So in that situation, this, uh, you know, food dragging, you know, uh, and uh, immo policy immobilism become real, right? And uh, they, they also have this, policy enforcement tool, what we call institutionalized mobilization that try to fix the problems associated with the, uh, uh, the campaign approach. Uh, in fact, we have seen China investing uh, uh, significantly in institutionalizing and routinizing those policy instruments introduced at the campaigns to tighten the grip of the party state. You know, you know, that is a pattern we call the institutionalized mobilization, right? Uh, through those means like party administration shared responsibility, the one post, two responsibilities, you know, and under this, the uh, uh, party administration shared responsibility, you know, local party leaders and government haze, you know, uh, uh, such as like a mayor you know, and the party secretary of the city, uh, they could share responsibilities for pollution control in their jurisdiction. Um, so uh, these measures you know, appeal to uh, tech effect. You know, this leads to our uh, next uh, the discussion on the policy effectiveness, right? Is China winning the war on pollution, right? Uh, it is very clear China has shown growing commitment to environmental protection. Uh, they have invested uh, uh, tremendously uh, in the renewable energy, right? actually more than 45% of the world's total 
uh, investment in renewable energy happened in China. Uh, and also as a government, as a result of the government's assiduous efforts, the share of the coal in China's total energy consumption uh, has dropped. You know, for, uh, actually in 2018, it dropped to below 60% for the first time. And then look at nationwide, you know, the concentration of PM 2.5 also dropped, right? An average of 50% uh, from 72 micrograms per cubic meter in 2013 uh, to 36 micrograms per cubic meter in 2019. You know, that was a measure uh, that took the United States approximately 20 years to achieve after its passage of the Clean Air Act in 1970. Uh, there's also an overall reduction in the percentage of polluted days you know, since 2012. Uh, if you look at the, this the figure, which shows the percentage of days with mean average of uh, uh, PM 2.5 concentration higher than 75, you know, that's 75 uh, micrograms per cubic meter, you know, because if it's higher than 75, it uh, uh, categorized as a polluted uh, day. Uh, in China. So it is very clear there's an overall uh, drop in the percentage of the polluted days. What the carriers here uh, is that the, if you look at the progress nationwide, it is actually very uneven, right? Uh, in 2019, that is not covered in the book. Uh, the PM 2.5 concentration level actually increased in more than half of the cities. You know, uh, air quality in 2019 uh, improved in Beijing, Guangzhou, but actually getting worse in Xi'an, Shenyang, uh, Chongqing, uh, Tianjin, and Harbin. And there's a second, there's this diminishing, diminishing return problem associated with China's uh, pollution control efforts, right? Uh, uh, according to uh, uh, the government's uh, uh, data uh, in 2019, among the 261 cities that uh, failed to meet the government uh, mandated uh, targets of air pollution control, you know, the PM 2.5 concentration level dropped by 2.4% uh, compared to the last year. You know, that uh, 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 clearly show that the speed of uh, uh, the drop of the PM 2.5 concentration has slowed. In fact, in Beijing, uh, in 2017, the PM 2.5 concentration dropped by uh, 16 micrograms per cubic meter. In 2018, it became 10. In 2019, uh, it only dropped by five. You know, so again, uh, this is the uh, decreasing or diminishing return problem kicked in. Uh, and the third is that most of this improvement air quality in some of the cities like Beijing, for example, uh, occurred in the summer. Um, in fact, if we look at the, the uh, um, uh, if we look only at the PM 2.5 level in the winter, that is November, December, and January in a city like Beijing, the situation, you know, it's uh, uh, barely improved, right? Uh, uh, from uh, 2012 through 2016. Now, most of the improvements in air quality occurred in the summer. In fact, uh, winter pollution was getting worse in some Chinese cities. There is also an increase in the concentration of other pollutants, especially ozone, right? that contribute uh, to, uh, uh, I think, 14% of pollution caused the death. 
right? Uh, the, uh, there is an increase in the concentration of ozone, uh, which uh, uh, actually the average ozone ex exposure in China uh, rose by 17% during 2014 and 2017. Uh, that caused an estimated 12,000 premature death annually. And in 2019, uh, the average ozone concentration rate saw a year-on-year -year increase of 6.5%. That indicates clearly uh, the stronger petrochemical pollution. Right? And fourth, uh, this steel, um, the uh, um, pro if you look at the, the steel production uh, in and also coal uh, production consumption in China, or uh, after the peak. Uh, um, uh, in 2014, in steel production, they dropped for two uh, for two years, but then uh, uh, it rose again in 2017. Right? Uh, we have seen um, look at this figure here, right? The steel output um, between 2001 and 2019, right? It's very clear, right? Continued to increase until uh, uh, 2009. Uh, to, I'm sorry, 2014 here, uh, then started to drop, right? And it dropped for two years, but then increased in 2017, uh, continued to increase uh, through 2019. Uh, the same is for the production consumption and consumption of coal energy. Uh, the, uh, 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 you can see, well, initially we thought that the coal consumption production peaked in 2013 uh, and started to drop. But uh, uh, since 2016, clearly uh, increased again, right? Um, the COVID-19 uh, crisis actually uh, threatened, well, the, I mean, the post-COVID economic recovery actually threatened to wear away uh, the past gains in pollution control. You know, in fact, uh, we found uh, that uh, more construction permits were issued for coal-fired power plants in China in the first half of this year than in 2018 or 2019. And by May 2020, the concentration of four air pollutants, PM2.5, nitrogen dioxide, uh, sulfur dioxide, and ozone all returned to or exceeded the monthly levels recorded in 2019. And according to a more recent report released by the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air, major industrial cities in Northern China may not be able to fulfill this even lenient uh, pollution target set for this winter. And finally, I also want to discuss this <laughs> unintended and undesirable policy uh, outcomes associated, associated with government pollution control efforts. You know, uh, essentially, this campaign-based approach creates those perverse bureaucratic incentives you know, that produce uh, those unintended outcomes. You know, the first problem is what we call uh, the, um, you know, I don't, I, I don't have actual term for that, uh, but uh, when um, you have those government targets uh, quantifiable, and then you include in the performance uh, evaluation for the government officials, right, you are going to encourage those local government officials to only 
pursue those quantifiable targets at the expense of others, right? So this shows the pollution level before and after the so-called two sessions, that is the, uh, the People's Congress and the political uh, consultative con con conferences at the local level, in fact, in two, uh, 189 cities, right? Uh, in terms of air quality index, PM 2.5, PM 10, uh, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, and ozone. What we found here is that a significant improvement only occurred for indicators that are used as a yardstick to measure local government performance uh, in environmental protection, such as PM 2.5 and uh, PM 10, right? When uh, actually during the, uh, uh, those two sessions period, you can, because of the government campaigns, you saw immediate drop of those, the, uh, the PM 2.5 or PM 10 level, you know, then, uh, but, uh, you know, immediately it was followed by a uh, you know, rebound of the pollution level. You know, there was also no significant impact on other pollutants, you know, such as ozone, right? Uh, the ozone level actually increased during uh, and after the so-called two sessions period. There's a second problem of what we call overshooting. You know, that uh, uh, is sometimes we call this like uh, the local government officials acting, you know, um, like more Catholic than the Pope in a way. Um, the, uh, especially when you have, you know, this, this so-called bandwagon polity, right? The uh, government officials compete, right? Uh, to, um, uh, sort of fulfill the government uh, uh, designated targets. You know, sometimes they just overshoot, right? Uh, the, in 2017, for example, when the government uh, in Hobei initially planned to convert 1.8 million homes right, in the province from whole, uh, the coal burning to gas furnaces, officials were so enthusiastic or so eager to comply uh, that they prompt, they, they, uh, they actually promoted more than uh, uh, 2.5 million homes uh, uh, to uh, make that switch. You know, that oftentimes involves physically destroying you know, the uh, people's coal stoves in the process. Right? Uh, so this caused unintended consequences because increased demand for gas combined with its unexpectedly low imports of natural gas, you know, left a large number of households without heat uh, uh, during the winter. And this campaign style enforcement also tends to rely heavily on administrative fight uh, in lieu of uh, public participation and market mechanisms. And that often fostered a non-scientific and heavy-handed approach in policy implementation. Uh, my book talked about in November 2018 on uh, this district of Taiyuan in Shanxi. Uh, uh, it was uh, um, the government imposed a blanket ban on burning coal, you know, uh, meant to uh, force this local res residents to adopt electric uh, powered heating, right? But without access to coal, but unable to afford the new heating method, the local residents try to keep themselves warm by burning old furniture, discarded wood floors, you know, dead wood, you know, that sent up clouds of smoke that only worsened pollution in the city. 
Uh, this, the more recently, just last month, I saw reports uh, again in Shanxi and then also in Shanxi, uh, local government officials actually use cement to block those heated brick bed, right? This is the people used to keep warm in the winter in Northern China. Uh, they, uh, 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 they, 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 uh, although well, they have distributed this uh, warming mattress pad, but people say, well, uh, you know, we, you, 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 this warming mattress pad is only for people to sleep, right? Because, but it won't keep the temperature high uh, in the uh, in the room, you know. So that is an, again another um, sort of unintended consequences of uh, the campaigns. So I'm going to uh, quickly uh, conclude. Um, so uh, environmental degradation, well, this, this is not the, uh, elaborated in the, uh, this presentation, but I want to just uh, 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 talk about this, this is some of the main conclusions of the book. You know, basically environmental degradation in China has not only brought a wider range of diseases and other health consequences than previously understood, uh, it has also taken heavy toll on Chinese society, economy, and the polity. Uh, and since 2012, the government has in indeed enacted new laws, policies, regulations, action plans to tackle uh, the environmental degradation problem. Uh, it has also introduced a number of new policy instruments seeking to align uh, the bureaucratic incentives with central policy goals in the implementation stage. Um, and it appears that the government has indeed started to turn the tables on air pollution, but again, the problems is uneven. The health benefits of pollution are, are, um, thus far remains limited and mixed, and the single-minded pursuit of pollution control has incurred unintended and undesirable consequences and outcomes on other policy fronts. And so, uh, uh, the case of China's environmental health governance essentially, as Stephen uh, said in the beginning, reveals a state that is remarkably resilient and fundamentally flawed. You know, that actually uh, has profound implications for China's future, uh, both domestically and internationally. So with that, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Stephen? Thank you so much, Yan Zhang, for the uh, very insightful presentation. Uh, it seems to me like the, the centralization of power under Xi Jinping has been sort of a double-edged sword. On, on the one hand, you say there's been more interagency coordination, there's been some progress in reducing pollution, and above all, the issue of environmental health has been able to rise to the top of the agenda because of Xi. But on the other hand, you say that this centralization has resulted in strong incentives for officials to jump onto Xi's policy bandwagon, or at the very least look to Xi as a bellwether in order to minimize their own political risk. And as a result, there's much less flexibility and autonomy at the local level, despite the fact that local officials likely know more about their unique situation than the central government in Beijing. So mm -hmm. since you've already done such an excellent job describing how this tension in the decision-making plays out between the central government and local officials, I want to ask you about the space for um, activism uh, on environmental health issues in China. First of all, how has public participation changed in recent years? What does it look like today? And um, what forms of collective action have been most effective and not seen as challenging the legitimacy of the CCP? 
Well, you know, this is not uh, covered uh, in the, the presentation, but uh, as you may have noticed, it's indeed covered in the book. We talk about the public participation, uh, even though that is the uh, um, um, mainly a top top down approach, but we indeed we found that the, the uh, public participation, the role of the society, social forces have played an important role, you know, in agenda change, in policy formulation and implementation. You know, the uh, in, uh, one of the chapter on the policy evolution, we talk, I talk about how, you know, these people in the public outcry and this, you know, sort of like uh, this, the, this movement that I gauge, you know, the PM 2.5 level for my country campaign actually forced the government to introduce the, the PM 2.5 in its the um, uh, air the uh, the quality con uh, monitoring system. You know, so uh, it uh, together with the uh, the U.S. embassy uh, in China, I think, uh, played constructive roles in uh, democratization of the uh, air. Uh, um, pollution data. And in the uh, um, policy uh, implementation too, we have seen uh, the, uh, the uh, NGOs, both foreign and, uh, and Chinese NGOs played important role, right? The, the uh, uh, Marjorie's, the, the environmentalist activist, Marjorie's uh, NGO, you know, the uh, um, played an important role actually to help the government uh, to uh, um, uh, implement to enforce the uh, government regulations, but they took a very sort of uh, what the, he considered uh, like a constructive approach, right? By using the government data, they are not doing like, uh, you know, not taking a, an, you know, like confrontational approach with the government, but use the government, uh, the official data, you know, they uh, create their platforms to show, you know, that the real time, you know, this the pollution uh, uh, situation, right? Then this different areas, you know, so uh, it allows people actually to monitor, right, the, the uh, implementation of the government regulations, but still, right, the, the uh, civil society organizations, you know, play, the role remains, you know, very much suppressed, you know, that uh, if you look at those, you know, litigation, right, the launched by the civil society organizations, most of that is still launched by the government actors, you know, there's public uh, pollution re uh, related uh, public interest litigations, right, uh, most of that are launched by the government agencies, and only a very small percentage of that uh, are launched by uh, civil society organizations. You know, one of the reasons that, you know, it's just too expensive, right? The, the uh, uh, just to collect the data, you know, and then also if you lost in the, uh, lose the case, you know, there's, you know, that uh, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, you need to pay really hefty, you know, there's litigation fees, you know, uh, it's just, but for most of these environmental organizations in China remain very small. You know, one of the, the largest like Marjorie's NGO, you know, remain very small, just maybe a dozen people when I was conducting interviews in Beijing. That was considered like the largest inter NGO's environment. And certainly now, you know, with the government, uh, you know, uh, this crackdown, you know, on civil society, you know, the social control, I'm sure, you know, their role, you know, uh, would continue Continue to be uh, uh, well. There's still a lot of room for them uh, to uh, 
sort of expand their influence. So I, I want to move on a bit to ask you about the, the so-called Beijing consensus or the China model. Um, given the endurance of the CCP and the astounding economic growth under its rule over the past 40 plus years, uh, some experts suggest that the authoritarian model is resilient and strong and perhaps a viable alternative to liberal democracy. How does authoritarianism, in this case in China, perform in the face of an environmental health crisis? And I, I ask this because so much of our focus in the US is on China's trajectory and the challenges it poses to us. Yet one of your conclusions in this book is that we are overestimating its strength or at the very least underestimating its weaknesses. So how should we factor in China's environmental health issues when discussing the party's trajectory and the strength of its political system? Yeah, I like uh, what you say. We are, you know, in terms of the US-China policy, the current one, clearly we over um, sort of estimate their strengths and underestimate their weaknesses, you know, that, uh, but uh, it is very clear, right, that the uh, China's, this authoritarianism is posing a challenge to liberal democracy, you know, that uh, certainly what that, if you uh, recall this event on January 6th, right, that, uh, you know, they, my, um, the, the, the president of the Council on Foreign Relations today just uh, uh, published this piece in Foreign Affairs. You know, he say, you know, this damage wrought by the January 6th to US foreign policy is great. You know, uh, the, the, the post-American world you know, uh, that is no longer defined by US primacy is coming sooner than generally expected. You know? But uh, it's less because of the inevitable rise of others. I assume that means China uh, then, uh, because of what the U.S. has done to itself. I remember, you know, right after the event, one China scholar, I don't want to name who that uh, he or she is, you know, basically said, you know, that, uh, you know, for the next 20 years, you know, never talk about, you know, democracy is superior uh, to authoritarianism. You know, that really like hurt, you know, the not just the U.S. soft power, but uh, actually uh, uh, tarnished the image of liberal democracy. And then, but you look at the uh, the uh, China's the uh, uh, the so-called China model of Beijing consensus, right? The it is indeed showing some very robust capacity, right, to attain uh, certain goals, uh, certain goals in certain areas. You know, they are very also very good at adapting to the digital world, right? You have seen clearly, right, not just in the environmental control in the, uh, but particularly, I think, in this COVID-19 uh, pandemic, you know, the government uh, was very effective in terms of using, you know, the digital means by like cell phones, big data, you know, to uh, monitor people's movements, to uh, implement uh, the uh, draconian uh, policy on COVID control, and also to use that to, to control this, this flow of information, you know, not to mention also uh, the use that digital means as it's an uh, effective tool for misinformation and uh, disinformation. You know, uh, the, uh, um, um, I think uh, there is something that would make uh, the authoritarianism, you know, to, here to stay in the uh, um, many, many years to come, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, certainly about this 
effective surveillance and social control is facilitated by this, you know, this digital means. But in the meantime, you know, uh, it has become increasingly difficult you know, to have an organized opposition, even among the elites themselves, you know, uh, the, uh, against existing ones. Um, uh, the, uh, but uh, I think um, it is still, I think, wrong to say you know, that you know, China's authoritarianism presents a viable alternative to liberal democracy, right? Uh, I think for the following reasons. First, I think the legitimacy uh, would continue to be a problem haunting uh, the Chinese state in, because its inability to anchor its rule in solid public approval. You know, that places less emphasis on performance and more on rule of law. Uh, the, um, the second, um, when this people's prosperity increase, right? The Chinese people are increasingly going to value the good health, you know, other things that you know, we have seen in this uh, this environmental control case, right? Uh, they're going to value things, you know, more than the basic earnings, right? Uh, so as a result, the gap between the popular expectations and the state's capacity to deliver uh, uh, these promised gains could only become larger and wider, right? Uh, so the lack of enlarged and institutionalized public participation, just as we have discussed uh, in this policy process actually widens the gap uh, between policy measures and people's actual wants, needs, and desires. And thirdly, uh, we look at this recreation of this bandwagon policy under President Xi. It has forced government officials to take speedy action, you know, but uh, uh, this unrelenting alliance, uh, reliance on campaigns right, has also, we have seen again the environmental case, distorted the bureaucratic incentive structure that led to unwanted and undesirable uh, uh, consequences, right? The, uh, certainly we have other examples like population control, right? You know, you've been so, state is so capable, so powerful, it even is able to internalize that population control behavior among the society. But when you lifted that policy, uh, this, this policy, you know, people, you know, still would uh, not give more birth, right? This, so it becomes you now a big challenge for China to compete effectively right, uh, with countries like India because of that reduced population dividend. And finally, the health and non-health consequences of China's uh, environmental de destruction also serve as a reminder that, you know, despite China's official statement on the superiority of their development model, it is still subjected to the same negative consequences, the dynamics, you know, of countries that industrialized before it, you know, did, you know, and is paying an even greater price you know, for its pollution. So such a model, when it's ported to other countries, I don't think it's going to be popularized, you know, as a best practice for uh, governing environmental health, other uh, development issues. You know. So, uh, uh, you know, I. Um, I do believe, you know, that uh, uh, again, authoritarianism still does not uh, present a liable, uh, viable alternative to liberal democracy. Thanks, Yanjong. Let's let's shift a bit and talk about China's place in the world with regard to environmental protection. Two big headlines about China from the past year come to my mind. The first is. President Xi's announcement that China will aim to be carbon neutral by 2060, 
But the other is the revelation that China has nearly 250 gigawatts worth of new coal-fired power plants under development. And for reference, that's more than the entire existing fleet in the United States, the existing fleet in India. Um, and these plants are supposed to last 20 to 30 years. I'm, I'm curious, how can we reconcile these two conflicting realities? But I'm also seeing a related question here from the audience. Um, Hope Marshall, a graduate student at Johns Hopkins Sice and a former National Committee staff member asks, experts like Barbara Finnamore claim that China is leading a global energy, clean energy revolution. At the same time, China continues to lack implementation on many of its domestic climate-friendly policies. Does China have credibility on the international stage when it is having trouble solving its own environmental degradation issues at home? Well, that's a great question. But, but first of all, but we don't want to confuse about the China's pollution control with its, you know, uh, it's the uh, efforts to work with you know other countries to uh, address the climate change agenda, right? Because uh, you know there's, there's connections between the two, uh, but uh, uh, we know that the six most common you know these pollutants, right? They include ozone, right? Carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide, um, lead, you know, nitrogen uh, uh, oxides, and particular matter like PM2.5, they are not considered greenhouse gases, right? Uh, even though they're still, they, they're considered pollutants, you know, but these two are closely interlinked. In fact, uh, China, uh, I think under President Xi, they used that pollution control agenda act strategically to push for uh, the emission control agenda. You know, that uh, was one of the reasons that this primary cause of the air pollution uh, is the burning of fossil fuels, right? Uh, that is also, we know that fossil fuel is also considered uh, a major contributor to climate change, right? So China's efforts to uh, clean up the environment also can contribute to uh, the uh, uh, international efforts by, uh, to reduce the greenhouse gas, uh, the uh, effects, right? Uh, the, the, uh, so uh, I think uh, well, under President Xi, you know, the, the, pre the political power has been so centralized. You know, that I think the, uh, go again, government officials have strong incentives to jump onto President Xi's policy bandwagon, right? In order to minimize the political risk, you know, be rewarded as an early and enthusiastic supporter of his policy agenda. Uh, so, uh, as long as you know the uh, uh, the leaders right, remain committed to, to the environmental policy agenda, right? This brazen disobedience or food dragging should be uh, rare, right? Um, well, th that being said, I think the issue is whether this policy will sustain in the long run. Right? There are basically two problems here. Well, the first problem is about policy coherence, right? Uh, this over-reliance on the mobilization or campaign-based approach hinders the growth of a stable rule of law-based enforcement mechanism that we believe are essential for pursuing long-term policy effectiveness. You know? uh, 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 so in the absence of rule of law, authoritarian rulers have the final say, but their policy agenda continues to shift, right? Uh, that makes it difficult to sustain a coherent agenda you know, on issues like climate change, right? Um, the, uh, uh, and also, right, the, uh, remember that when President Xi right, announced that uh, 
um, that China is going to uh, be carbon neutral by 2060, right? We're talking about this is going to be in 40 years, right? Uh, President Xi may not permanently stay in power, although <laughs> uh, theoretically, not legally, that's doable. Uh, uh, but even so, he may not commit to that his policy agenda. Uh, leaders themselves may disagree with each other on the policy priority priorities. You know that may contribute to the selective action, uh, selective implementation problems at the local level. Right away, local government officials themselves may have more leeway in pursue their favorite po favorite policies that may not be environmental protection. Right, and second, I think those politically charged campaigns they typically serve short term goals. Right, uh, uh, so Beijing will continue to face this major challenge in sustaining uh, their gains that already achieved by right, doing those campaigns. We talk about how you know you know they have seen more. Uh, Coal-fired power plants being uh, continued to be uh, constructed, you know, even though China is talking about, you know, making uh, China carbon neutral by 2060, right? The, uh, but but the, you know, just the campaign themselves, right? They they are uh, uh, not sustainable. You know, very often by this, the end of a given campaign is followed by a return to business as usual because it was simply impossible to achieve fundamental change in local bureaucrats, local implementers policy behavior, right? And that's such a short period of time. But that being said, you know, that I found there's a new development now is that uh, it seems that Chinese leaders now um, determined to beat the odds you know, by institutionalizing and routinizing their new mobilization approach, just like what you know, they did, but there was like very rarely did uh, in the case of population control, right? Uh, so, you know, we saw that the, in the uh, China's you know, efforts to maintain the zero COVID infections, right? Uh, we have seen that in their uh, efforts to uh, maintain this blue skies, in the, the reduction of PM 2.5. Uh, so through this institutionalized mobilization of central government, uh, uh, they um, may still right, they have a chance right, to improve accountability you know, and to align bureaucratic uh, behavior patterns with leaders' policy preferences in the long run. But even that has its own shortcomings you know, because again, government officials typically accountable to their immediate superiors, you know, they're inclined to undertake heavy-handed, sometimes even unscientific measures, you know, to meet those benchmarks set in those high power in politically charged campaigns. And also those, you know, at all costs, by all means approaches in order to meet the policy targets are based on administrative fight, you know, not on rule of law or the active participation of the civil society. So uh, there's unintended consequences, you know. So uh, that uh, would continue, I believe, to haunt the government uh, policy makers in the policy process. Thank you. We have a question from uh, Teresa Poor, the Raymond C. Offenheiser Fellow at Oxfam America. She asks, is the state of China's environmental health a cause for concern as China exports its model of economic success to other developing countries through the Belt and Road Initiative? Is BRI simply China passing the buck and its pollution problem to other countries? 
Well, that is indeed, I think that's a great question. That's indeed a concern. You know, when I was uh, doing interviews, um, someone mentioned to me that uh, told her that uh, you know, this, this, this one of the vice provincial governing in China said, don't worry about pollution here. Like in decades, it's all going to end up in Africa. You know? So uh, the, um, so there's this concerns that this Belt and Road Initiative, which is focused on those construction of the big infrastructure projects, the cement, the steel, right? It's the way, you know, sort of like used like a trudging horse for China to outsource the pollution, you know, uh, to uh, other countries, especially in countries, you know, that have, you know, lax uh, regulations on environment, uh, pro uh, the uh, on pollution, right? countries in Central Asia, maybe also in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. But uh, in the meantime, it, it seems that the Chinese government uh, also emphasized the importance of the green development right, in terms of investing uh, in those projects. You know, so I hope uh, they mean it, you know, but uh, uh, so, uh, so far we don't have any uh, um, uh, evidence to support that indeed, you know, China's investment uh, in those countries, the Belt and Road countries, have led to uh, or worsened the problems, you know, the uh, this environment in those countries. We have a question from David Peets at the University of Arizona. He says, I hope this is a fair question. You focused on air pollution. Is there any reason to believe that the dynamics of the administrative process you described and their outcomes have been different in the water sector. And I'll add also uh, soil as well. Um, I, I'm curious to add on to this, if the focus in China on air pollution has taken any resources away from the other two uh, pollution problems. Well, that is another great question, right? When you look at those action plans, you know, the, the first action plan tackles the pollution, right? The, the air pollution problem, you know, that after all, right? It's the, uh, uh, one of the uh, major concerns as far as, you know, the uh, environmental health is concerned. In fact, uh, um, the pollution caused uh, um, 1.8 million deaths you know, in China Majority, most of that is caused by air pollution, right? The, the others is caused by water pollution and soil pollution, right? Uh, in 2000, uh, after 2013, China has the uh, kicked off those action plans you know, uh, to fix this, in the, uh, this, the water problem and then the soil contamination problem. Uh, it has made some progress, supposedly that the, by the end of 2020, uh, there were, uh, going to um, have 70% of China's water uh, ways being uh, meeting uh, the uh, government mandated uh, uh, the targets by in terms of the usability and you know, safety of their water. Uh, but uh, so far we haven't had any systematic data to assess or evaluate the policy effectiveness. Uh, they have indeed introduced the so-called river chiefs system, for example, again, to institutionalize those campaigns, you know, uh, improve the government accountability uh, uh, in uh, um, 
uh, improving uh, water quality. Uh, the, um, as far as the soil pollution is concerned, we know that is a big problem. Uh, it's the, also a major contributor uh, to uh, the food safety problem in the country. I just published a piece in South China Morning Post magazine about this the issue, which is adapted from the book. But uh, they have conducted a study in 2000, released that uh, the, some of the results in 2014, although uh, much remains to be known. Uh, still, some still, including the water uh, the issue, uh, the quality, you know, the uh, uh, how serious the uh, the uh, the pollution is, remains a, a state secret. Uh, uh, and they, are, I, I heard, they have uh, launched another survey on China's the soil pollution problem. But so far, we haven't heard anything about the, you know, what's the status of that survey, you know, whether they have completed, and if so, you know, when they're going to re, uh, unveil the results. You know, so uh, time will tell. <laughs> Thanks, Yanzhong. Um, Phil Alford at Harvard Law School asks, uh, can you say more about the alignment of bureaucratic incentives with post-2012 policies and laws? Are economic growth and political stability still much more important than environmental issues in cadre evaluation? Well, this too, well, this, well, yeah, I think a good question. I think, um, um, well, these two objectives, you know, certainly are not, uh, you know, uh, Conflicting with each other, right? The, uh, in fact, if you read the the, the chapter, the uh, two, uh, uh, chapter three, uh, I think chapter two of the book, when we talk about the impacts on the economy, the society, uh, and the foreign policy, and then the polity, uh, I, I have a section, you know, focused uh, on how uh, those environmental health issues themselves, you know, are a major concern was social and political stability. In fact, uh, uh, we have the data suggesting that people's complaints, petitions, uh, increased significantly since 2000, uh, 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 in uh, 2001 or 2002. Uh, the, uh, they have also a lot of those so-called mass incidents associated with the environmental cost health problems. You know? So uh, it become now a like like a separate category uh, for uh, those mass incidents, you know. So uh, the government has indeed have strong incentives, you know, to fix the pollution uh, because of its profound implications for social, political stability. We are almost out of time here. So Yan Zhong, I just want to ask you one quick question. Do you expect your book, which is quite critical, uh, to be translated into Chinese and? In addition to this, do you, do you anticipate any issues when you next return to China to work on your new projects? Well, again, I'm a, I'm a scholar, right? I, um, um, I think it's not the scholar's job, right? To, to you know, like uh, have a political agenda, you know, uh, to criticize simply for purpose of criticizing. It's my job to tell the truth, to provide balanced analytical approaches, you know, to even controversial issues. And in fact, uh, you know, I, uh, I I hope right the uh, the government will take this as uh, um, not uh, you know like you know the uh, uh, like a. Um, criticism from an activist, you know, it's the, uh, a const I hope we take it as constructive uh, 
critique from a scholar. In fact, my experience, especially over the past months, as far as the, uh, the China's COVID control is concerned, it seems that the government is indeed, uh, they are learning uh, they are even uh, willing to take uh, the independent uh, uh, the, uh, perspectives, including uh, criticisms, uh, and uh, incorporate it in their, their, their policy process. You know, so you know, that, uh, I think, gives me hope, right, that, that uh, you know, this, they will find this book, uh, hopefully, <laughs> useful. I sure hope so, too. Yanjong, thank you so much for the excellent conversation. And thanks to our audience for tuning in today and sending in such uh, engaging questions. I'm sorry that we didn't get to more of them, but I've hope, I hope we've piqued your interest enough to go out and get your own copy of the book if you're looking for more answers. Again, this is Toxic Politics. Uh, I believe we sent a link in the chat where you can purchase it. Um, I wanna thank my colleagues, Margo, Erica, and Bernice for helping to make this program happen from behind the scenes. And of course, Yan Zhong, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you, Stephen. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.